Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The word of the Lord. Hey, um, really excited. That was great. Uh, thanks for the announcement on children's ministry. You guys may not know this, but um, everyone here is a volunteer. I don't know if you realize that, um, including me, um, volunteer. He is a volunteer. Uh, people that wor- do worship, lead worship, Chad and Ish and all of them, they they're all do it just for free. So does um, David and Josh. And I was just thinking about that, and I'm like, 
how cool is this, you know, that God would stir up a group of people to do this, you know, and to, to want to do it and to do it with such excellence. I mean, it's seriously exciting to me. So we would love for you guys to join us in volunteering in this way or maybe in some other way. Um, it's a great way to get to know people, too. I know I'm continuing to do the announcement now. Um, but it's a great way to get to know people, too, you know. Um, when, you're, when you're serving together, you get to know each other. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we are truly blown away by what you're doing here, what you're creating here in Menifee. Um, and, and, and Lord, it's, it's, it's surprising because it's strangely simple, Lord, that as your people gather here by the power of your spirit, as they're moved by your gospel, Lord, as they love one another, um, as we open your word, as we pour out ourselves in worship to you, you transform us. And we don't even fully understand how you do these things that you do in our hearts, but we are so thankful, Lord, for the transformations in people's lives in this room. And Lord, we, we thank you for that. We pray that you would do it yet again this morning, Lord, as we open your word, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage people, that you would convict, that you would heal, that you would cast out fear, that you would give courage, Lord, that you would guide people that you would flood us with fresh hope, that you would stir us up to love one another, Lord. We, we pray, Lord, that you would help our joy rise as we see your son again this morning. We pray you do all this for your glory and your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, here we are in John uh, 8, and um, uh, I'm going to start in an awkward way. Public speaking, they always say, like, do something everybody will agree on and everybody will love, and, you know, you start off with, like, a nice story or something. Um, I want to start off by highlighting the fact that we did not read the beginning part of John 8. Did you notice that? We didn't read the woman caught in adultery. Um, it's the, the story of how Jesus uh, came to a scene where a woman had been caught in adultery. And uh, there were some re- religious leaders there that wanted to trap Jesus. And they said, what should we do with her? And, they, and then he starts writing in the sand. You remember the story? He starts writing in the sand. And we don't know what he wrote. But um, he said, whoever you know, is without sin, cast the first stone. You can be the first to throw a rock at her. And they slowly all walked away, right? You remember this story. Um, we didn't read it because, well, I'm just going to do it like pulling off a band-aid, um, because John didn't write it. John didn't write it, and it doesn't belong in Scripture. How do you feel? <laughs> I feel like the guy in Princess Bride, right, the torturer. <laughs> How do you feel now? It's very important that you be honest, you know. Um, you may feel like I just took something away from you, but I, I think I'm going to give you something better in return. Um, we've known for a long time, Christians have known for a long time that that passage is not should not be a part of scripture. You can see it in your, in your Bible. It says the earliest manuscripts don't include this. This particular story of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery is not in any of the manuscripts pre-5th century. Okay, So we have all these manuscripts and copies of the Bible, and none of them before the 5th century have it. When we look at, um, and when they do have it later, they have it in different places. Like it can be here, it could be at the end of John, it pops up in Luke. And so it's obvious that it was a fragment, a story that's been inserted in a bunch of different areas. Also, if you look at the early church fathers when they taught, when they commented, and they, they taught expositionally, most of them, straight through books of the Bible, and they went straight through and didn't mention it. So uh, it's an indication that it wasn't in their Bibles, it wasn't in their manuscripts. And, um, and I think this serves as a really good opportunity, guys, just to talk real briefly about how we got our Bibles. And so I have a whiteboard here. <laughs> look at that. That's surprising. Um, whiteboard here. I'm going to draw you a very awesome diagram, which is... Here's John, okay? Here's the, the gospel author John, and he's, he's writing the gospel of John here. Maybe this is in, you know, 85 AD or 90 or something like that, right? And he writes that, you know, uh, down, writes this gospel that we have, 
and it gets sent, right, to a church, right? So a gathering of people, they'd be gathered in a home right here. And then what would happen with this, with this letter that he wrote is it would get copied. It would get copied and sent out to other churches because everybody wants a copy of this, right? And so you'd have copies made. And then from there, you know what happens. There's more copies, right, and copies of copies. And then some of these older ones, you know, get copied way down the line because they last a long time, okay? And so we have all these different copies of the manuscript. And this is all in Greek. This hasn't um, been translated. When people say, oh, the, the Bible's been translated so many times, it hasn't. It got translated once from Greek to English in the New Testament or from Hebrew to English in the, or whatever language in, in the Old Testament. And so when we look at this, when we look at the, the copies that are kind of pre-fifth century, these ones, some of the best ones, some of the earliest ones, do not have this particular story. They don't have the story of the woman caught in adultery. And that's how we know that at some point after the fifth century it got inserted. Now, um, just because it isn't written by John and it isn't technically a part of scripture doesn't mean it didn't happen, okay? This could very well be some oral tradition about something Jesus did. When we read it, we go, yeah, Jesus would do that. Like, it's a story that you go, like, that sounds like Jesus. That sounds like something he would do. And I think that's probably why it's been, people have hanged on to it for so long. Um, and we have an awesome amount of manuscripts. We've got a chart that's coming up here. But when we think about how much the Bible's been copied, um, we have an amazing wealth of manuscripts. And, and this is small, so I'm going to kind of go through it with you. But if you look at other ancient, shouldn't touch that. Um, if you look at other ancient documents, and this is blocking your view, sorry. Move this over here. Um, when you look at other ancient documents, like you have Homer's Iliad here. It was written about 800 B.C. And we look at how many early copies we have it. We have about 643 of them, of these copies of copies. With the Bible, with the New Testament, um, our earliest ones are, are 114. There's a fragment. It's called uh, P52. And it's a little piece, actually, of John that we have. So it would be maybe even a copy of the original writing of John which would be awesome to have, you know. If you have the money, you could get, get yourself one, probably not. Um, and what's amazing here is, look at this. So for the Iliad, we have 643 copies. We have over 5,300 early manuscripts. These are ones from the first few hundred years of the Bible. And, um, and you can look at the age of these. We have fragments from 114. We have whole books of the Bible at 200 um, AD. We have um, most of the New Testament. Uh, 250. We have a complete New Testament from 325. There's this thing called the Codex Sinaiticus, which is a complete Bible that they found on Mount Sinai in a, in a monastery. And it was in a pile of other books that they were going to burn. And some guy found it and said, hey, let's not burn that. You know, let's, uh, let's hang on to that. And that's, that's the oldest complete Bible we have. But we have tons of little pieces of the Bible. And look at the differences here. Like uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have 10 copies and you can see that the, the gap between when they were written and, and, and the, the, when the copy was made is so far. I mean, it's, sometimes it's 1,000 years where we have ones that are 50, 100, 150 years from the original. And another cool thing to see here is the agreement that we have between manuscripts. When we pull these manuscripts um, of John or of the other New Testament documents, we have a 99-plus percent agreement between them. And there's this science where you take all these manuscripts and you look through them. It's called textual criticism. And you look through and you decide what is the most likely reading. When there are variants, you can tell there's a process. There's an academic discipline to decide which reading is the most likely. And these are over small things. Spellings, you know, synonym-type words, things like that. Um, so, you guys, you can have a huge, huge degree of confidence in your Bible. And um, 
it's funny, with this particular part, I had a skeptic friend of mine who sent me an email last year. And he sends me this email of an article that says, hey, you know that the story of the woman caught in adultery you know, probably really isn't a part of scripture. It probably wasn't written by John. It was kind of this gotcha. Hey, I found this out. You know what I did? I took a picture of the note in my Bible. And I said, yeah, all Bibles say that. And he was like, oh. <laughs> you know, so none of this has been hidden from you, okay? In any case where we have a reading that is, that is unlikely to be in there, there will be a note about it. Uh, nothing's been hidden from you. It's all stuff that you can get and look at. Um, the other one is at the, there's one at the end of Mark, you know, the one um, that talks about snake handling and stuff, and thankfully is not a part of scripture. Um, but you know, guys, with this one, I mean, just, just so you can see, it is not a, there's no bias here at work of why we would not say that this is a part of scripture, this part with this, this story, because it's not like we don't like this story. We love this story. Everybody loves this story. It's sad that it's not really written by John, actually. But because of the data, we have to say this isn't a part of Scripture. Is it important? Yes. Is it probably something he did? Probably is. But it's not something that should be included in Scripture. And some of your Bibles will even have it like in a really small font, you know, so you have to work really hard to see it. Some will put it down at the bottom. Some will put big brackets. Some put big alarms around it, you know. But you can know that that's what's going on. Uh, This might actually also kind of lead you to a question of, why are certain books even in the New Testament? You guys may have wondered this. Some people are talking about things like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Mary and things like that. Why don't we have those included? And there's a really good answer to that. The answer is is that all the books of the New Testament were written either by apostles or close associates of the apostles. And so they had to be written in the first century. And so when you see things like the Gospel of Thomas, that was something that wasn't written by Thomas. We know that because it was written well into the second century. Thomas would be dead. And it's not a good start if you have a book of the Bible that wasn't written by who it says it is. I'm starting off with lying right off the bat. So, um, and why did they do that? Why, would they, why do you guys think they would call like, somebody writing in the second century and say, hey, this is written by Thomas? Gospel of Steve and the Gospel of Frank do not gain traction. But if you hear a Gospel of Thomas, you go, ooh. Or a Gospel of Judas, you go, oh. right. And this happens every Easter where people bring these up. Um, If you want to read those, there's these books like um, Bart Ehrman's book here, The Lost Scriptures, uh, books that did not make it in the New Testament. I love the title, Lost Scriptures. And I'm like, ooh, we found it. You know, here they are. (laughs) Um, So they're not lost. They're in this book. And you could read these. And and these would have been written in 2nd and 3rd century by what's called Gnostics. And they would have written their own versions of Jesus' life, Jesus' childhood, things like that, and stamped biblical names on them so that you'd want to read them. And even Bart Ehrman, who's a real proponent of these, says in the beginning, in the intro here, that these were not written by the people they say they were. And they were written much later. So there's no debate on that. There's no, like, Christians believe that Gospel of Thomas was written second century or later, and everybody else believes it was first century. There's nothing like that. We all agree they were written later. Is that fun? Did I give you something else in return? Okay. Good. Um, And and the reason I want to bring this up, guys... um, a couple of reasons I want to bring this up. Actually, one last thing I want to tell you. How many first century documents do we have about Jesus that claim to be written from one of the apostles or something do we have that we have not included in the Bible? Do you know how many? Zero. We actually have no other first century documents that even claim to be written by apostles or anything that have not been included in Scripture. It's really slam dunk. It's not like, 
You know, why did people decide this? And there's a bunch of criteria of why we decide something should be canon or not, but that first century test just takes care of it right off the bat. So um, the reason why I bring this up, guys, is because um, two things. I want to show you that you can have real trust in your New Testament, and if you guys want to talk about it more or you'd like, you know, that diagram to where you could actually read it, we can send that to you. But I also wanted to bring it up because um, that sets the stage for where Jesus is speaking here. Jesus is still talking in verse 12 during the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is really important because if you insert this other story, then it's a whole other day. But this was the same day of the, the water pouring rite that we talked about last week. And remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was this yearly feast where the Jews would get together and remember that their ancestors were led in the wilderness for 40 years. After they were freed from Egypt, they wandered around until they got to the Promised Land for 40 years, and they had no permanent home. And remember, it's called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths because they would live in little shelters. They would camp for a full week. And they would remember how God had led them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke and how he fed them manna and provided them water from a rock. And so in this context is when Jesus is speaking in verse 12. And just to give you a little bit more background before I read it, not only was that water, there that water pouring right that I talked about last week, but they had this um, lighting ceremony. And so to remember how God had led them by a pillar of fire at night, they lit these four huge lamps in the temple court. This was on the last day as well. They lit these huge lamps, and then they had the Levitical uh, choir and orchestra play music, and they would dance all night, and they would sing, and they would have torches in their hands, and they would just remember, God's the one that gives light. God's the one that gives us direction. We need to follow his light to be safe. It was this wonderful glow, literally, in Jerusalem on that night. And it was during this time that Jesus says the words in verse 12. Have you guys ever been in the desert at night? It's dark, right? If there's not a full moon, it's super dark. Just think about the people and what that was like as they were traveling to the promised land at night. There's a whole bunch of people. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And you could be afraid and you could not know where to go and things like that. But what God provided for them at night was this huge pillar of fire. And it, and it acted as this amazing kind of GPS that they could, they could trace them around. Um, we did college ministry for like 10 years, and one of the things we do when we did our retreat in Anzabrego is we do capture the flag at night, um, which was a really bad idea, but we kept doing it. And uh, there's this thing called jumping choya, which is a cactus that will like almost jump onto you, and we had a lot of that. And so you can just imagine at night having this kind of guidance, having, having the, the glory and the presence of God. I was also thinking about this way. Not only did it, did it show them the way to go, but it also reminded them of God's presence. You guys remember when you were kids and you had nightlight? You know, maybe it was a Power Ranger nightlight or whatever you had. They had that nightlight, and you remember that that gave you real security, right? It made you feel comfortable, that, that you weren't alone, that, you know, you kind of knew your surroundings. The Israelites, as they were in the wilderness, had the best nightlight ever, can you imagine being camped in the desert at night and having this pillar of blazing fire that's actually the glory of God with you? They never had to feel like they were alone. They never had to fear that they were lost. They always had God's presence. And it's in this context, guys, that Jesus stands up amongst this whole celebration and says, I'm the light of the world. Isn't that awesome? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying he is the true pillar of fire. He is the true glory of God. He is the one that directs his people in the wilderness so that they don't stumble, so that they don't um, get lost. 
But how does Jesus practically do that? And we're going to look at verse 31 to see that. How does Jesus practically lead us? Like that pillar of fire led the Israelites in the darkness. How does he practically lead us today? And you look at verse 31. Jesus says, So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Um, We receive guidance from Jesus, the light of the world, as we abide in his word. And this word abide is really interesting. We don't normally use it, uh, except in one situation you're probably already distracted by. But abide means to hold on to or to remain. It's this sense of like holding on to or persevering in Jesus' teachings. That what Jesus is saying is that his true disciples find his word, his teaching so precious that they seek to understand it more and more. They want to bring their whole lives up under his authority and can be controlled by his teaching. They have this holy obsession with being immersed in all the words of Jesus. Isn't that cool? And Jesus is saying this because he knows about his audience. It says here that he said it to the Jews who believed in him. He knows about these people that, quote unquote, believe in him, that they don't have saving faith. In fact, spoiler alert, they won't last until the end of this chapter. By the end of the chapter, they're going to be hostile to Jesus' teaching. And so Jesus is saying that perseverance, continuing to hold on to his word, is a mark that you are truly his disciple. And I was just thinking about us, and I was just thinking about that should really encourage those of you who are persevering in his word, who, who keep abiding in his word even through intense trial. I mean, I know many of you, I know what you are going through. You know, many of you have gone through severe economic decline and you still abide, you still hold fast to Jesus. Some of you are dealing with severe issues of failing health and you still abide, you still persevere in Jesus. Some of you have like bitter conflicts in your relationships that are out of your control and you still hold fast to Jesus' teaching. Some of you guys have deep doubts. Remember back to chapter six when Jesus teaches about eat my flesh, drink my blood and most of the crowd, most of the disciples are like, we're out of here, this is weird. Some of you have deep concerns about things Jesus has taught. Some of you have deep concerns about how the world is and how it fits together with Christianity. And yet you're not like the crowd. You're like Peter. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, do you want to go away too? And what did Peter say? He said, you have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? Some of you are like that, you know? Some of you are holding fast to Jesus even in the midst of your doubts. Some of you guys are holding fast and remaining in Jesus' teaching amidst huge moral failures of your own. You think about, perhaps you've blown it hugely. You know, you've had some massive moral failure. And yet, instead of walking away from Jesus in shame, which is the thing you want to do, you know, you go, I blew it. I blew it too big to be a part of God's church. I blew it too big to follow Jesus anymore. I'm just going to walk away in shame. Instead of doing that, what do you do? You've kept coming back to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy and help in time of need. You're abiding. You're persevering. You're remaining. You're his disciple indeed. It may not look pretty, right? You may look pretty beat up. You may look pretty bloody. But you keep coming back to Jesus after your failures. And you return to Jesus and say, teacher, I'm ready for another lesson. And you know what he says? You are truly my disciple. And so... Let's get back to verse 31. It says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Guys, this is often misquoted or partially quoted. This is very commonly on a lot of college buildings and stuff like that. It'll say, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the motto of Johns Hopkins University. This is the motto of the California Institute of Technology. Um, This is a common thing that people have. The idea that they have with it is, if you just have enough education, then you'll be free from all your problems. 
And it is true that knowledge is power, but it's not enough, right? We are the most educated people, I think, that have ever been, right? I mean, you can, you can download iTunes U, and you can actually take courses at Harvard and Yale and Berkeley and Oxford. You can listen to all these for free, and yet our culture is just as jacked up, if not worse, than ever. Education's not the solution, right? Education's not the solution because we don't have an education problem. We have a moral enslavement problem, okay? And so adding more education to it doesn't solve the problem. Um, you, you guys know that you can know the right thing to do and not want to do it. You can want to do the right thing and not be able to. That's enslavement, right? And Jesus is saying that we need to be freed from the inside to these people. And their response is priceless. I love their response because Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Like, you need to be set free. And you see what the response is of these um, ancient Jewish people. They say this. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Guys, these are, this is an ancient Jewish culture, and they've never been enslaved to anyone? You know, I mean, they're at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is about how they were enslaved to Egypt, and they got freed. Like, we've never been enslaved to anyone. And they go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, there was the Egypt thing, but that was a long time ago. You say, yeah, but there was the Assyrian thing. There was the Syrian thing. There was that Babylonian time of captivity. The Greeks took you guys over, right? And then right now, the Romans have you, okay? I mean, here they are, this ancient Jewish culture, they prided themselves that they were free, and yet they were blind to their enslavement. I'm thinking, how about us? How about our country, the United States of America? I mean, just to say it, you feel good. I mean, I love our country. I'm, I get choked up with patriotic songs and stuff. We pride ourselves, guys, though, on freedom, that we are built on this unalienable right, right, of liberty, and yet we are just as blind to our enslavements, aren't we? And the reason why this is important to realize is because Jesus has come to be the better Moses, okay? Here they are at the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus is saying, I am the better Moses. I'm the one that's come to lead you out of bondage to sin and bring you to the ultimate promised land. But you know, guys, you won't want a liberator unless you know you're enslaved, right? You won't want a liberator unless you know you're enslaved. Look at verse 34. Jesus explains it to him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's patient with him, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the sense here of committing sin is not the occasional act of sin, but remaining in a particular sin. The sense here is of habitual sin, of practicing a particular sin. And I just ask you guys, do you find yourself returning again and again to the same old sin, unable to break free? That's not freedom, you know? That's slavery. And guys, human beings were not meant to live like slaves. We weren't made for that. Um, and just, you know, guys, just like physical slaves can be, start to think slavery is normal, we can start to think that spiritual slavery is normal, but it's not. And in our culture, guys, we believe this certain freedom myth. I was thinking about it this week. We believe this myth that we can somehow reject God as our master and yet be our own masters. So we have this idea that, like, I can reject God as master and I can be my own master. And that's what our culture is about, right? I'm going to be my own master. I'm going to be my own Lord. That somehow I can live without God as a master and yet remain free from enslavement to other masters. But, guys, your heart wasn't made like that. You guys realize that every one of our hearts was made with a throne inside of it? We all have a tiny throne inside of our hearts. And God designed us that way so that we'd be captivated and serve him. And when we boot him out of that throne, that throne has to be filled with someone or something. 
It doesn't remain empty, and you can't sit on it. <laughs> okay? When we refuse to be captivated by God and serve him, we just end up serving someone else or something else. Okay? Something else will take that throne. Bob Dylan. Enter Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's song. This is great. Listen to these lyrics of Bob Dylan. You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on a stage. You might have money and drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor. They may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Isn't that true? And in our culture, the masters that take that throne will be things like money, right? Or security, the security that brings. Or a big one in California, body image. Or pleasure. Or a big one in our culture, the approval of others. Or maybe substances to medicate. Or lust and pornography could take that seat. Or the success of your kids. Really feel that one. The success of your kids. Our social image. You know, we think about social media and stuff. What do people think of us? Um, pleasure. We know, and we know, guys, that it's our master when we're crushed when we lose it, or we're fearful when we're threatened to lose it, or we're covetous when someone else has it, or we're bitter and angry when people withhold it. We'll all, and, and guys, too, the other thing, too, why do we break God's commands? We'll all break God's commands to serve our true master, Right? We'll all break God's commands to serve our true master because our true master means more. Remember what Jesus said about masters. He says, no servant can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that goes for anything, right? That throne only has room for one master. It's either God or it's something else. Something's gonna take the throne. And it can change throughout life. Uh, Thomas Chalmers, who's a preacher in the 1800s, really loved this sermon. You can find it online. You'll have to read it. It was the 1800s, okay. Um, but it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You're like, I thought he had a podcast. No. Um, it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the big idea is that you never stop serving an old desire until you get enslaved by a new one. That's why it says expulsive. It expels. A new desire, a new affection will expel the old one. And he gives this example here of a young man that will give up laziness. He was enslaved to laziness, and he'll give up being enslaved to laziness because he's got a new um, idol, which is lust, you know, following girls around stuff, takes some energy. So he, he stops being a slave to laziness, he starts being a slave to lust. And then he gets a little bit older and he goes, you know, I gotta stop the partying stuff. So he stops being an enslaved to lust, he starts being enslaved to money, right? And he takes that over and, you know, people in his life might think, oh, well, this is an improvement. It's not, it's another master. And then later in his life, he'll start to think about, am I really leaving a legacy? Am I doing anything important in my town? And he'll give up his uh, master of wealth, and he'll take on slavery to power. You know? And we see this throughout life. The throne of our hearts must always be occupied. And we just get passed from slave master to slave master, just like the history of Israel. Slave master to slave master. Because it's got to be filled. Now Now that you know that, isn't it good news when Jesus says that he's come to set us free? And that's what these people needed to see. They needed to see they needed liberation. And we need to see we need liberation. So what does he say in verse 35? Jesus has come to set us free. And he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Um, in this ancient Hebrew culture, there were both sons and slaves in houses. 
And slavery wasn't permanent, which is interesting. I was reading about this week. But it was, um, you'd, you'd be a slave for six years. And on the seventh year, at the latest, you get set free. So you weren't a permanent part of the house. You know, you didn't have any right or claim to the house. Your time there was limited. But the son stayed in the house forever, right? The son would inherit the house. It's his house. Jesus is saying here that there's really only two kinds of people that have been born into this world. There's slaves to sin and him. <laughs> so he's got his own category, right? There's only two kinds of people that have been born in this world. Slaves to sin and me is what he's saying. And this whole world, guys, is God's house, right? And we here as slaves of sin are temporary occupants. Temporary occupants. The slave does not remain forever. There are people, there are fallen angels that populate this world in rebellion to God. And in Revelation uh, 19 and 22, it says that one day God's going to clean house, right? He's going to clean house. He's going to bring his full kingdom here. And he's going to remove all slaves to sin. We don't have any right or claim to stay here. It's his house, and we've been living against him the whole time. It makes sense that he would remove us. And we don't know how many years we have. It's not like oh, six years, you know. We don't know. But only Jesus, it says in this passage, is the son. And, he, and the house belongs to him. Only Jesus the son belongs in the house forever. And only he has the authority over the house. And only he has the power to free us. Right? And he's saying the son of man will set you free. And, um, but setting us free cost him dearly, didn't it? Jesus lived a life of complete freedom from slavery to sin. And then at the end of his life, he was betrayed and sold by his enemies. Remember that? Do you remember how much they sold him for? 30 pieces of silver. You know how much that is? Price of a slave. He was sold for the price of a common slave. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the true son, was cast out of the father's house like a slave so that we who have lived as slaves to sin could be welcomed home to sons and daughters. Isn't that awesome? On the cross, Jesus Christ, the true son, was cast out of the father's house like a slave so that we who have lived as slaves to sin could be welcomed home as sons and daughters. And just like in ancient times, you know, you'd have a, a slave market and um, you could see a slave in the slave market and you could buy that person, you could set him free. Jesus came and he did that, but he did it at the price of his blood. Look at 1 Peter 1.18. Peter says, knowing that you're ransomed or bought out by the from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. His, the price he paid was his blood. I love that verse because there's one part in here where he says you were ransomed out of the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Have you guys ever thought like, the reason why I'm in this sin, the reason why I remain in this is because it's just the way my family is. You know, this is what I got from my dad. This is what I got from my mom. This is my whole family. You know, if I look through my family history, I, I just see a tree of dysfunction, bad marriages, addictions, um, you know, abuses and things like that. And you just think, this is just how I'm going to be. It's not how you're going to be if Jesus sets you free. Take a look at it. He says, he has ransomed you out of the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You can live differently. You have a different life. He sets you free. And he sets you free, not with silver or gold, but his precious blood. So for those of you who trust in him, trust in the sinless life he lived and this, and this death and this price that he paid, you do not have to be enslaved to any particular sin. You just realize that? That's seldom said. It, maybe it sounds like too big of a problem. I'm not saying you're going to be sinless. I'm not saying you're not going to sin. But Jesus' promise, if you read Romans 6, that would be a good place for you to read this afternoon, is that you do not have to be enslaved to any particular sin. There doesn't have to be any particular sin that has the power over you anymore. Um, and what we're talking about is habitual sin. 
Jesus will free his disciples from any habitual sin. Look at Galatians 4, 7. He says, so now you are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. And if sons, then heirs through God. Good news. You get to stay in the house. And for us as a community, we get to learn how to live as those who are sons and daughters, not slaves. And that takes some time. It takes a while before you stop thinking like a slave. It's part of the reason probably that God marched them around for so long in the wilderness is they needed to stop thinking like slaves. It takes a while. And now you may be thinking from this, you know, hey, I'm a Christian and I don't feel all that free. I kind of feel enslaved actually. You know, how can I, how can I move forward? How can I, you know, start walking in freedom, um, the freedom Jesus paid for? And, and I want to just say to you, that's what discipleship's all about, guys. When you think about discipleship, discipleship is learning how to walk in the freedom Jesus already bought you at the cross. And um, if you guys know me or you know us, you know that this is super important to us. Super important that, that God's people, you guys, would learn how to walk in the freedom Jesus bought you. And, um, and where does this happen? You know, this happens in kind of discipleship relationships, right? Whether they're a small group or they're one-on-one or whatever. We don't want to grow, guys, in numbers as a church without helping our members grow in freedom from sin. It's not a win, it's not a win to fill a room and everybody's just as enslaved to, you know, things like bitterness and anger and pornography and image and substances and gossip and judgmentalism and fear and other bondages. I mean, it's not a win to fill a room with people that stay enslaved to sin. And so, guys, we want to continue to be a place where you can, you know, confess your sin, where you feel like Jamal was talking about accepted and it's an environment of grace. But we also want to be a community that will help you move forward. And so please feel that. Please feel that this is a place you can confess your sin, you could get together with a brother or sister here, and you could learn to walk in freedom. You do not have to be enslaved to any particular sin. Guys, Satan wants you to believe that, that you're enslaved, right? I just think back to like the, the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, right? And you got to know that there were some places in the South where, you know, the slave master was holding on to his slaves and saying, you heard what? No, no, no. That's not for you, right? That's what Satan wants to tell you. He wants to tell you you're not free. He wants to tell you you've always been this way and there's no way to change. Guys, when, if the Son of Man sets you free, you're free indeed. And so we want to see, we're already seeing this, but people are getting together and they're discipling one another and they're gathering together and we want to do that more. We're seeing people set free. We want to see more of that. We'll give you more details on that later, but that's something that's really important to us to value. And, um, and how will it happen? It'll happen as we abide in his word, right? He says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As we abide in his word, we start to see the gospel more clearly, and we become more and more captivated by Jesus and less and less captivated by, his, by our sin. Um, it's, the, it's the power, right? It's the uh, expulsive power of a new affection. You know, as we see Jesus more clearly, um, that old idol, that old master gets taken away. I love this quote from, and I'll end on this, um, Tim Chester has this, uh, thing that he says in You Can Change, which is a great book. Um, it sounds like a self-help book, but it's not. Um, but this is what he says. He says, in Greek mythology, the sirens would sing enchanting songs, drawing sailors irresistibly toward the rock and certain shipwreck. You guys remember that, the siren song? And they're like, oh, what's that? And they die, right? Okay. He says, Odysseus filled his crew's ears with wax and tied them to the mast of the ship. Like, that was his technique. We're going to plug your ears so you can't hear the siren song. We're going to tie you up. And he says, this is like the approach of legalism. 
He says, we bind ourselves with laws and disciplines in a vain attempt to resist temptation. And then he says, Orpheus, on the other hand, had a different technique. He played such beautiful music on his harp that the sailors ignored the seductions of the siren songs. He says, this is the way of faith. The gospel, the grace of the gospel, sings a song far more glorious and enchanting than that of sin. If only we have the faith to hear its music. That's what it's about. That's what discipleship's about. And so as we're rocked by the gospel, what happens is our old master gets dethroned, right? And the risen, crucified and risen Jesus takes his rightful throne in our hearts. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing, life-giving word. It's just, when you open it, and your spirit just causes Christ to stand forth, and, and we see your heart and your love for us, we're just blown away every time. It's, it's amazing. Father, we pray that you would continue to draw us into your word, Lord. Make us people that abide in it, that live in it, that persevere in it, Lord. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to captivate our hearts by what we see in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you freed us from slavery, Lord. Help us this year to investigate what all that includes. There are certain things that you have done through your son on the cross that we have not even begun to walk in. And we pray, Lord, that we would press hard into you, into your word and your spirit this year with each other and really find out how free we can be. Lord, peel away that that slavish heart to sin, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash menifee.